Uh, if you have your Bible, find yet again Second Timothy chapter three. As we keep trucking through this series on the doctrine of Scripture, meaning what we believe about the Bible and the different attributes and characteristics of it that we believe are true of it, Second Timothy three has been a very important passage in that conversation. That's still going to be the case tonight, and even though we're going to think about other passages along with this one, this, this is going to start out as home base for us. We're uh, at least halfway through this, this series, um, if not a little more, I haven't counted, but we, I know we've talked about um, the very concept of revelation, we've talked about Jesus' view of the Bible, we've talked about the very foundational and bedrock doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that's sort of the fountainhead out of which all these other things flow inspiration of scripture then we talked about the inerrancy of scripture that scripture does not err we talked last week about the infallibility of scripture that scripture cannot err um tonight's going to be on the sufficiency of scripture the sufficiency of scripture and uh and then after tonight um we'll have left the clarity of scripture the authority of scripture the necessity of scripture and the transmission of scripture um so we got five behind us already, and then after tonight, four more. So I guess that means we're dead on halfway tonight. Um, the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is, is almost immediately apparent as a very practical doctrine to know. Practical. And I'm not saying the other attributes of Scripture that we've looked at or will look at are not practical. In fact, I hope the way that we've presented the, the, the doctrines prior to tonight I hope that they have been presented to you, and you see how practical they are. Um, but I'm talking about how easily apparent, and almost obviously apparent, uh, the doctrine of Scripture, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, its practicality is. In fact, uh, we, we began talking about that in the very first week of, of this series, in the introduction. I started already talking about one of the most obvious practicalities of this doctrine then, um, we'll cover some of that same ground a little bit tonight. But uh, we're going to think about this doctrine for a few minutes tonight, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. If you found 2 Timothy 3, let's begin uh, there and read again what I hope is a, already a familiar passage to you. We're going to start in verse 15, and then we'll read through verse 17, the end of the, which is the end of the chapter. It's picking up in the middle of a sentence. We'll start in verse 14, actually, just for good measure. But as for you, Paul is writing to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Let me just pause right there. You know how somebody taught me to memorize that verse when I was in college? Uh, tractor. Tractor. T-R-C-T-R. -T -R. Uh, training, uh, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. T-R-C-T-R. -T -R. Tractor. So now you know that one. Anyway, um, yeah, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, this scripture and every other one that we're going to consider, it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. 
And we ask you again tonight, Lord, would you give us eyes to see the truth in your word, about your word. Not just so we know more about the Bible, but, but because it is, it is, as we'll see tonight, the means by which we are. We know you and can be faithful to you. Give us eyes to see those things, minds to understand them, hearts to embrace them, and not just know them. We don't want to be puffed up with knowledge. We want to, we want to know in our minds and our hearts and embrace them in our hearts and give us wills to obey whatever it is that you're leading us to do in, the, in this, in this uh, lesson tonight. Give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're taking notes tonight, uh, here's how we're going to think about this topic. I encourage you to take notes because we're going to be referencing some different Scripture passages that you may want to jot down. We'll consider some definitions that you may want to jot down. In fact, some of them are going to be a little long, so you might want to just take a picture. It'll be on the screen tonight. Um, so anyway, if you're taking notes, here's what we're going to try to see. Number one, scriptural support and definitions. Scriptural support and definitions. And I said uh, pretty much first week and every week thereafter that these things that we believe about the Bible, that we believe are true about the Bible, they are first and foremost. They're not things that we just made up at some point in time. They are things which we discover from the Bible itself. And I know, yes, that sounds like a circular kind of argument because we believe these things about the Bible because the Bible tells us that these things are true about the Bible. It sounds like a big circle. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks when we talk about the authority of Scripture. But scriptural support and definitions. Second, after scriptural support and definitions, I want to note quickly historical support. Historical support. Meaning, just some examples that this is a doctrine that has been held since the earliest days of the church. That to disbelieve this doctrine, therefore, is not just to, de to, to depart from the clear teaching of Scripture, it is also to depart from the historic position of Christ's church. Thirdly and finally, I'll give a little application. That's the third point, application. And uh, we'll, uh, I'll note a couple things, one of which will be something we, we already talked about a little bit in the first week. So that said, let's dive in and think first about scriptural support and definitions of the doctrine of sufficiency. We're going to consider some different scriptures and a couple of definitions that can kind of crystallize what we believe the Bible teaches. All right? So I assume you're still open to 2 Timothy 3, and looking at that passage we read, the place I want you to notice in particular of that passage is the last verse, verse 17. So having affirmed in verse 16 the inspiration of scripture, that all scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God, and then, and then in verse 16, uh, highlighting its, its subsequent uh, profitability, you know, for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Then it comes to verse 17, and it makes this claim, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, you won't find the word sufficient. You won't find the word sufficiency in that verse, really, in any of the verses we're going to look at, you can't really go to a concordance and look up sufficiency or sufficiency of Scripture or something like that and find it. It's just not going to be like that. Um, you won't find the word there, but the idea of it, the idea, the essence of what it's saying um, is the undeniable presupposition or assumption behind that verse. Because you have, you have to ask the question, like to use the language of verse 15, why 
can being acquainted with the sacred writings or to use the language of verse 16, why can being acquainted with all Scripture that is breathed out by God, why can that make a man complete, right? That the man of God may complete. Why, why can it do that? And the answer is because it's sufficient to do that. That, that idea is just kind of laying there. Or how can, as, the, to verse, as verse 17 says, how can the Scriptures equip us, equip me, equip you, for every good work? I mean, and I mean, really think about what that's saying, right? That is saying that there is not, there is not a single solitary good work that God might ever require of you or me that Scripture does not completely equip us to do. There's not a single solitary good work. What is the assumption behind that? That the Scriptures are completely sufficient for every good work. That there is nothing outside of what we have in the Bible that would be absolutely necessary for any and every good work before God. So the, script, the sufficiency of Scripture is the clear background to that passage in 2 Timothy 3. But there are other passages that also teach this same thing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In places you might expect, in places you might not expect to find support for this doctrine. And again, this is a doctrine where you're not going to find the term, but the essence of what we believe is there. In fact, we believe it only because it's there. So what are some of those? Here's some of the things that you might want to jot down if you're taking notes. Here's, here's a couple in the Old Testament. The first one is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And this is what we read in that verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the things, the words of this law. Again, just think carefully about what is said in that verse and reason through it. That verse is saying that God did not reveal to us the sum total of all truth. Right? He did, there, are, there are things that are still secret from us. There are still things that He knows that we don't know. Maybe for all eternity, we will, we, well, I know for all eternity, we will not know all that He knows. But out of all of that, out of the sum total of all truth, that verse is saying um, that God chose just these things to reveal to us. Out of everything, he chose these things to reveal to us. So you go in here and you know your reason, knowing the character of God that is presented to us in Scripture and knowing that his desire is for us to be saved and to have eternal fellowship with him, then you know, you reason from that, that what he did choose to reveal to us will not come up short of that. Uh, it is sufficient. Or think about another Old Testament passage that we've considered already more than once. Psalm 19.7. Psalm 19.7. We're not going to even read the whole verse, the whole psalm. But Psalm 19.7 begins this way. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, there is nothing lacking in it. There is nothing needed to be known that is not already contained in it. If there was, it wouldn't be perfect, right? Therefore, it is sufficient. Or think about the several times um, in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that God affirms 
the complete su- sufficiency of what he had revealed at different points. Okay? Here's an example. After the giving of the law, the Lord said to Moses in Deuteronomy 4.2, after he gave the law, this is what he said through Moses in Deuteronomy 4.2. He said, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. After he gave the law, he says, this is what you need to know. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. After he fully revealed the gospel in Jesus Christ, here's what he said through Paul in Galatians 1.8. Galatians 1.8. Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats the same thing in the next verse. Gospel is here. It is just as it is. Anything else is a curse from God. And then, so you got the law, you got the gospel. You go to the very end of the Bible, very last chapter of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This is what the, the Lord says through John in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the book of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Over and over and over you have those kinds of statements. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. What he has said is perfectly uh, sufficient. What we need to know. What we need to know. Um... Not, not, not everything there, you know, it's not always what we want to know, but everything we need to know is there. And that's why we don't say, not, it's like not everything that there is to know is there, not everything we want, but everything we need. That's why we say, we don't say we believe in the exhaustiveness of Scripture, as if everything is there. We say it's sufficient. It's sufficient. That, that, that word in itself remi- reminds us there are things that are not there, but what we have here is enough. It's enough. And there are many other scriptural examples for this doctrine for sure, but I did want to look at one more example from Jesus himself. And it might, not, it might be from a place that you wouldn't expect to find support for a doctrine of scripture. And I'm talking about Luke chapter 16. And I would like for you to turn to that one in your Bible. Luke chapter 16. And this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus uh, from Luke 16. You'll find, when you get to Luke 16, you'll find that beginning in verse 19, and it'll go through the end of the chapter. The rich man and Lazarus. So, we're going to read this together. This is really not, first and foremost, a parable about the doctrine of Scripture, but you have tremendous support for it here. When we read it, I want you to pay careful attention to what Abraham says to the rich man. Okay, when the, at, at, after the rich man's request. Pay attention to what Abraham says in reply to the rich man. Okay, so beginning in verse 19, there was, Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what, was, what, with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, uh, that in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, and listen carefully to what he said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, did you catch how Abraham responded there at the end twice? The rich rich man begged to be temporarily let out of his torment to go warn his brothers against their unbelief and their disobedience, claiming, hey, if, if, if somebody rises from the dead, they'll believe. Um, But Abraham first replies in verse 29 that they have the testimony of the Scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. They can listen to them. Then he even makes the claim in verse 31 that if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the Scriptures, they wouldn't even believe if someone should rise from the dead. Incidentally, like Jesus did. But that says a lot about our sinful hearts, right? That's, that's, That's one of the points of the story. Like, that, that says a lot about our sinful hearts, that, 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 that our, our sinful heart would just explain away somebody rising from the dead like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? When he said, you know, there's blame it on indigestion, or like there's more gravy than grave about you. But there's a lot of, it also says a lot about the scriptures. Like, Abraham says twice, the scriptures are perfectly sufficient just as sufficient, no doubt more sufficient than any other miracle to bring a man to repentance and faith for salvation. Now, Scripture is just, it's just replete with testimony to the reality of the sufficiency of Scripture. So having seen all that, how do we put it all together? I want to give you some definitions that have been given through the years. Some are a little more complicated than others, but not impossible. A few of these will be on the screen. I may add one or two more. There's three of them that I wanted to put before you. And three different ones. The first is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Another one is from theologian John Owen, a long time ago. And more current one from Wayne Grudem. And uh, let's just read these. And, 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 and this is, these are like crystallizations, distillations of like, okay, all those scriptures put together, how can we summarize what they just teach us? And this is one definition from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, 
and life, all things necessary, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the, of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, I'm going to point out some commonalities between all these as we, as we move through them. But that one says that all things that are necessary to believe for salvation is either spelled out very clearly in Scripture or it is clearly and easily deduced from something that is said in Scripture. It's sufficient for that, and nothing needs to be added to it. The second the, uh, definition is from around the same time, 16, middle of the 1600s, from John Owen. And uh, his is a little more complicated, but it's not impossible. Just try to follow his train of thought. He says, The Holy Spirit of God has prepared and disposed of the Scripture. In other words, he's given us the Scripture. So as it might be a most sufficient and absolutely perfect way and means of communicating to, unto our minds, what? That saving knowledge of God and his will that is needful, which we may live unto him and come unto the enjoyment of him in his glory. In other words, he's, he's saying Scripture is, is a most sufficient and absolutely perfect way of communicating what we need to know about and to believe for our salvation and how to live after that and bring us all the way to glory. That's what, it, that's what he's saying when we die. That's pretty good. Third one is from our own day, from Wayne Grudem. He's still alive and kicking. Um, and he wrote, Scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him, and for obeying him. Again, the commonality is there. All we need to know for salvation, and all we need to know to live a life of obedience and live a life that's pleasing to God. That's what we're talking about. It's all there. Sufficient. And so when we talk about the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture as it is taught in Scripture and as it is later de defined, of course there are a great many things, other things, that Scripture is not sufficient for, right? Because it never was meant to be sufficient for all kinds of things. The Bible doesn't talk about everything on earth that there is to talk about. It has a specific aim. And concerning that specific aim, it is perfectly sufficient, right? And so is Kevin DeYoung, who is a pastor and writer and theologian. He well puts it, and he says this. No one can say, God has not revealed enough for me to be saved or to live a life pleasing to him. Nobody can say, God hasn't revealed enough for me to be saved or live a life pleasing to him. That's the specific aim of Scripture. How can we be saved? How can we live a life pleasing to God? Nobody can say, God hasn't told us enough for that. It's sufficient. And we can see the same emphasis at times throughout church history. So we think very quickly about historical support, thinking about how we're just following in a long line of believers. The way that the Westminster Shorter Catechism very succinctly put it 400 years ago, um, this is a good one to memorize. That little catechism is a good one to memorize. My kids are memorizing this right now. 
And uh, the third question of that catechism says, what do the Scriptures principally teach? Some of you might know this answer already. What do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the Scriptures principally teach. What we're to believe, how we are to live. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. And the church has always believed this. I'm going to just give you two or three church, early church fathers who said similar things. The church father Tertullian. You may have never heard that name in your whole life. Don't name your kid that. Nobody's named that anymore. Tertullian. Um, his, one of his claims to fame, he's the guy who invented the word Trinity. He's the first guy who used the word Trinity in the history of the church. I'd say he's kind of important. Second century. He said, I adore the fullness of the Scriptures. Woe to those who add anything. That's pretty stout. It's just perfect in what it already says. Augustine, or Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century, he said, In the things openly declared in the Scriptures, we can find whatever is necessary for faith and practice. Whatever is necessary. In, this, in the similar century, 4th century, Basil of Caesarea said, It is a proof of unbelief. It's a proof of unbelief and a sign of pride to weaken any of those things that are written or to introduce what is not written. As time rolled on, uh, closer to the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church had developed a somewhat limited view of sufficiency. And I'm going to give you a distinction that may sound a little academic, but it's, it's very practical. Uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's a distinction that came, became very important during the Reformation. And that distinction is between the material sufficiency of Scripture and the formal uh, sufficiency of Scripture. The material sufficiency and the formal sufficiency. Now, what in the world is that? The material sufficiency has to do with the matter contained in the Bible. Um, that, that it is sufficient information for saving faith and a life of holiness. That's the material sufficiency. It is sufficient information that if I believe it, I can be saved and live a holy life. The Catholic Church claimed to believe that. What they denied was the formal sufficiency, which is what? It's a second layer of sufficiency. Not just that it has enough information, but formal sufficiency says that Scripture also contains within itself the sufficiency needed to be interpreted rightly and understood in your own personal reading of it. Right? They claimed you can't do that on your own. They claimed you need the church, you need the hierarchy, you need the Pope to tell you what to believe about what the Bible says. They would say they wouldn't trust you with your own Bible. Right? They were denying the formal sufficiency. And it was for that reason that in that day the Roman Catholic Church fought for so long against translating the Bible into the language of the people. Right? They would keep it in Latin. And because of that, 
because it was all in Latin. There came with it tremendous ignorance of the Bible. Um, ignorance of the gospel. I'm a, I want to read you a testimony from that period of time. This is from a biography of William Tyndale. This is crazy. In the 1500s, the Archbishop of Canterbury was complaining of the monks who performed the services that they were wholly ignorant of what they read. And of the unsatisfactory clergy in 1551, nine did not know how many commandments there were. Talk about the Ten Commandments. Thirty-three did not know where they appeared in the Bible. The Gospel of St. Matthew was a favorite guess. And 168 could not repeat them. Most extraordinary of all, perhaps, were the results of the Lord's Prayer part of the examination. 30 did, 39 did not know where it appeared in the Bible. 34 did not know who was its author. The Lord. And 10 actually proved unable to recite it. That's crazy when that's your pastor. And, and, and that's what began, that ignorance and that, that corruption is what began sowing the seeds of a reformation because men like William Tyndale, utter genius, wanted to translate the Bible into the common language of the people, right? He once told a proud Catholic theologian, he said, and I quote, if God spare my life, Ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more Scripture than you. Because he would put it in their language. And then he did. He translated, he translated most of the Bible before he was murdered. Right? 90% of the King James Version came from William Tyndale. Luther translated it into German for the first time. It spread all over Europe. And because Scripture is sufficient, not just materially, but formally a plowboy can take this Bible and with the help of the Holy Spirit and any kind of other ordinary means, hey man, what does this mean? That's kind of an ordinary mean. You can understand it. You can understand it. And because you could understand it, the gospel was recovered and a reformation took place in the church. And I would say that if there is a tendency among us today, it's, it's, not, that we, it's not that we don't believe in the formal the formal sufficiency of Scripture. I think we would say, yeah, if, if, if there, Scripture interprets Scripture. If there's a, a difficult passage over here, you can find a, a similar passage over here that sheds light on it. And yeah, the Holy Spirit can help us um, understand it. We'll talk more about that next week, by the way. We, we, we agree with that. I think it's that we too often easily forget and neglect the material sufficiency. We forget what it, the sufficient message is. Right? Let me say a word about that quickly as we move to applications. When the, when the Reformers recovered a full understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture, they understood what it was sufficient for. And there's basically three things that it was sufficient for. Two of them I've already mentioned. The three things that they believed it, they understood it was sufficient for was, one, it was sufficient for what is necessary to, to be believed, to be saved. That's, that's one thing. Second thing is, what must be done to live a life pleasing to God? That's the second thing. 
Third thing, though, was, and this is where they really departed from the Roman Catholic Church, they believed that Scripture is also sufficient in giving us what is necessary for the establishment and edification of the church. That is, what the church is to believe and teach and what the church is to do when we get together. That's, 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 that's the big thing. That's that last aspect that I think the American church has largely lost in, in many corners. Kevin DeYoung also said this, talking about, he talked about the tendency, I want you to listen to this. Just, he talked about the tendency of the American church to plan and dream and scheme and vision cast and engage in mutual discernment, all while God's clear voice lies neglected in our laps. People like to quote Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. And they use that to act like in every place and in every generation, the church has to come up with a fresh vision. You know, a, a dream of what they think God wants to do or he's about to do, right? A and they plan and they scheme for that like, Man, but that isn't up to us. That's not up to us. The Scripture is sufficient. God is going to do what God is going to do as we gather together as He's told us to and just do what He's told us in His Word to do. The same in every place, in every generation. That's the vision. That's the plan. Obey the whole counsel of God. I know that's not sexy, that's not always exciting, it's not crowd-drawing, crowd but that's the obedience that God blesses. I don't want to be a pastor if I have to cast a vision every year. I don't have that many visions. I don't have any visions. I have a Bible. Right? That's the obedience that God blesses. The obedience flows out of the understanding that God's Word is sufficient for what we are to believe and what we are to do collectively as a church, but also true individually. And this is what we talked about the first week of this series, and, and, and I won't say a lot here because you can, you can go back on the podcast and catch what I said there, but Scripture is, is sufficient for you as an individual, just as it is for us as a church, for every decision you have to make in your life. Every decision you have to make in your life. I mean, come on now. Don't, don't nitpick that. Do I wear these shoes or those shoes? Scripture doesn't care. God doesn't care, really. Right? But for every... He cares in the sense that he ordained it already. But <laughs> for every meaningful decision you have to make in your life, Scripture is sufficient so that you can be walking squarely in the will of God. And that was what I said the first week. The will of God, the path... To walking in the will of God is wider than you think. The, the way to be out of the will of God is to choose to sin, right? Um, it, 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 the Bible may not be as specific as we want it to be, but it is as sufficient as we need it to be. And, and the, the reason God does it this way is because we grow in sanctification and wisdom when we read this sufficient word and we wrestle with it, and then we just make a decision based on what it told us. You just make a decision. Just do something. That's what God wants. 
The sufficiency of Scripture is a comforting doctrine. And I pray that as we continue to pile one attribute of Scripture up on another one, we come to treasure the Word of God more and more and neglect it less and less.